This is a podcast from ABC Radio Overnights. I'm Rod Quinn. And we start on country this morning with a quick question. What do you think about when you hear the term wilderness? It could be a desert. It could be a thick forest area. But probably it's somewhere where nobody lives. But that's a Eurocentric view of what Australia was like 250 years ago. Because people did live in those wilderness areas. And the arrival of white settlers and explorers who didn't consult with those whose families, tribes and people had lived in those areas for tens of thousands of years has caused problems in Australia from the very start. Our guest on Country This Morning argues that to think of those parts of our continent as wilderness knowingly excludes Indigenous peoples and also sets back conservation efforts. After all, those areas are the product of the long-term management by Indigenous and local peoples over thousands of years. Under the custodianship of Indigenous peoples, bushfires were fewer and more controlled and biodiversity was preserved. So surely Europeans have much to learn from the land management approaches of our First Nations peoples. And perhaps science, as we currently understand it, well that may not have all the answers either. On Country This Morning, we're discussing the so-called wilderness myth and the long-term effect that that theory has had on our land. And our guest is the Associate Professor in Biogeography at the University of Melbourne, Wiradjuri man Michael Fletcher. Michael, welcome to Overnights. Good morning, Rod. Thanks for having me. How are you? When you hear the term wilderness, what do you think of? I think of a landscape in which people are absent, in which natural processes that are processes that uh, occur in the absence of human activity are the dominant process occurring. Do we have any wildernesses in Australia? It's a good question. I'd argue no. I'd, I'd argue that even those areas in which the dominant drivers in the system are, are what we might call natural systems, they've been actively protected by Aboriginal people um, through various means, principally through uh, burning buffers around them so that they can access resources in them for many, many thousands of years. So even those areas in which the human footprint might be considered light, and I'm thinking um, tropical rainforests or other kinds of rainforests, these are actively protected areas. So in the grand scheme of things at a a landscape level, I would say that the true wilderness areas in this continent are, are really small, if existent at all. The idea of a wilderness in Australia, I suppose, comes from even going back to the first contact between white people and Indigenous people, that they couldn't understand that anyone would live in a desert area and they couldn't understand how anyone could live in a forest. Is that fair to say? Yeah, it's even, it's even deeper than that. The, the term wilderness, if you, if you just Google it, actually, if you can do a Google um, search on the use of words through time and it'll mine literature, English literature through time, The use of the word wilderness surges every time the British colonies encounter something new. So into Southeast Asia and um, and India, into North America, into Australia, the the use of the word wilderness surges. And it's because of the vast difference in landscapes that are encountered and also the vast difference in the way that people are engaging with those landscapes and producing what we would call a cultural landscape. They look very, very different. The, the English and the European idea of a cultural landscape 
versus a landscape in one of these other places. So a cultural wilderness, that's a different matter altogether, even though it is perhaps uh, defined in the same way. I'm sure those first settlers, those first explorers, if you want to use those terms, saw this as a cultural wilderness as well because it was so different. They didn't understand the culture of the people they were meeting. Yeah, and it's clear, absolutely clear in all um, reports and journal entries that were written at the time that people were being encountered Yet the language around landscapes was still embedded in this wilderness absence of people, natural beauty, natural wonder, pristine kind of narrative. And the dots weren't joined. The dots weren't joined between people in the landscape and what they were doing to maintain and manage the landscapes that were encountered. This is despite these superlatives being written. I mean, Cook wrote about the Botany Bay area, what a splendid area, thinly wooded, like a gentleman's park, all this kind of superlative language which is vastly different than these landscapes now so we know now that these were intensely managed landscapes but those dots weren't joined then because there was a very strict cultural idea about what managed landscape looks looks like there are fences there are you know farming apparatuses all these kinds of things that were not present in these other cultures and so the dots weren't joined and this narrative of of wilderness was really take, took hold. So in those areas, in the areas that we now have cities today, and there were Indigenous people living, and really that includes everywhere, everywhere in Australia where there's a city or a town now, how were those lands managed, for want of a better word, by the people who are living there? Well, the principal tool sort of ubiquitously across the con- continent is fire. And by, and this is, we're talking about fire use for Um, people were all throughout the mainland Australian continent by at least 50,000 years ago after arriving somewhere before 60, 65,000 years ago. And the main tool was fire. By applying fire to a landscape regularly uh, in a controlled way, small areas, day after or year after year, decade after decade, you know, century, millennia after millennia, you can actually control what grows where and what... um, what doesn't grow where, and create more productive landscapes and predictable landscapes. If we think about the the central tenets of land management, irrespective of culture, it's to create a safe, predictable and resource-rich environment around us. And all people have done this in any part of the earth where they've lived. They do this process of managing landscapes to, to, to achieve these ends. And such a long application of a particular regime maintained a much more open landscape uh, thinly wooded, you might say, with a few large trees and copses of trees and and uh, a much um, more frequent but lower intensity occurrence of fire than we see today, where we see sort of long intervals, years without fire in, in some of these systems, and then the occasional really big hot fire because the fuel structure and load is significantly different. So how do we know that this is what happened or how they did it? Has that tradition been passed down even 10,000 years? How do we know what was going on 10,000 years ago? Or do we know that maybe lightning strikes might have wiped out entire populations? Yeah, it's a great question. There's there's multiple lines of evidence. There's traditional knowledge and oral histories. I've done a lot of work on oral histories around the continent and they're hardwired into traditional knowledge and oral, oral histories. Uh, events that could only have occurred through the Ice Age, for example, of oral stories about Port Phillip Bay being dry, oral stories about um, deep cold times in different landscapes in southwest Western Australia, oral stories about sea level changes in, in the top end of the, the country, 
I know of no written system that has in it hardwired evidence that goes back 20,000 years, 30,000 years, nothing else. So this is very strong communication and maintenance of, of knowledge through time. Lay upon that, we have direct experience of Aboriginal people who are still working on country or the descendants of people who have worked in managed country. We have white settlers, invaders and colonisers, reports and journal entries and uh, landscape painters of the time, some of them who are phenomenological painters, painters who are very, very accurate, whose paintings we even use to revegetate landscapes like Eugene von Gerard. And then we have the kind of science that I employ, uh, which... I incorporate all that knowledge and I work closely with traditional owners to understand um, their epistemology, their understanding of landscapes. And I drill cores, so sediment cores down through lakes and bogs and through soil. Um, I can date those using scientific techniques, uh, radioactive decay of isotopes. I can analyse the plant pieces in the, in the cores through time, the charcoal in the cores telling me about fire regime change through time, all sorts of things, different elements, different chemicals that indicate landscape change. And by doing this repeatedly across the landscape, which is what I've done and I continue to do, you see that over the last thousand years, the biggest shift in landscapes occurred immediately following the British invasion order when the British came in and colonised and settled parts of Australia after 1788. And by and large, that it falls into one of two camps. It's a shift in fire regime as Aboriginal management was removed and no management was replaced. Or... It's a shift in Aboriginal management, fire regime, and then a conversion to pasture or, or agricultural landscapes that we still see today. So the landscape's kind of management is split into either neglect or intensive management as we see in, in farms and things today. So by all of those combined bits of information, this is the very scientific and empirical information that I derive, along with the what we call the ethno-historic, the written and the oral and the, the painting accounts of, of white people in this continent at, at contact and shortly after, and the deep traditional knowledge which overarches all of that, we can understand what landscapes are like and how they've changed. Michael Fletcher is our guest. Settlement began in 1788, but that was in a very small area of Australia at that time, just around the, the Sydney area. It took a long time for it to spread throughout the continent. What do we know about the way that behaviour changed in those areas unaffected by white settlement for a long time? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question, and it really did radiate, radiate out from those settlements. There were some impacts outside those settlements, and I think the best examples are, say, in Tasmania, where Aboriginal people were known as they saw ships coming up the west coast to set fire to huge tracts of landscape, which all of our information suggests they didn't really do very often, as a defensive mechanism. So already as a, as a warning off of, um, of warding off of, of these ships that they saw approaching into to Macquarie Harbour and things like that, where Sarah Island Penal Colony was settled very early in the piece. We see uh, invasive species such as um, plants that hook onto sheep and other animal fur, things like rumex, these sort of um, exotic plants from Europe moving into ecosystems. So there's these forerunners of ecological change. The main impact we see, and it's time, what we could call time transgressive, it occurs early in the initial settlements. But say, for example, where I'm doing some work right now in, in East Gippsland on Gunai Kurnai country, the, the true sort of catastrophic impact so in the Crow Jingalong National Park where these sort of dense forests are where the black summer bushfires really ravage you see almost a thousand years of no big fire major fire event 
Then the last local massacre of Aboriginal people occurred in around 1870, I think, or in the late 1860s. In 1890, around about the time it takes for, for fuel loads to accumulate and shrub layer to accumulate to, to change your fuel structure, you see the biggest fire to occur in that region in the previous 1,500 years. So it happens earlier in some places where, where white settlement occurred earlier, later in other places. And it's, it's time transgressive. The biggest impact was when Aboriginal people were forced off country either uh, through uh, brutal means like massacres or through slightly less brutal means of pulling people off country and putting them on missions and other things. Your study um, found that the removal of traditional owners in the 1960s from these deserts, from the desert areas, affected the frequency of fires there as well. So we're going up to as late as the 1960s with the effect of this. Yeah, yeah I mean, I think the last people living on country around Central Australia walked off country in the, in the 1960s because they had no one else to communicate with and, and, and trade with and, and uh, exchange uh, ideas and, and socialise with, for want of a better word. So we're talking up to very, very recently in areas that were less desirable, if you like, for, for white settlement. You know, there's a myth that Aboriginal people are kind of restricted to the deserts in the north. No, the, the densest populations of Aboriginal people were exactly where the densest population of, of settlements are today, in the productive areas. It's just that... Those areas like deserts and the far top end were less desirable at the time for exploitation by white people. So the impact on communities was either later or less or both. What happens when people return to these areas? So the work that we drew upon, and it wasn't my work from the deserts, it was work from Rebecca Bird and others in this synthesis you're talking about where we draw information from Australia, Southeast Asia and, and the Amazon to elucidate these points that these landscapes aren't wilderness. They are very much managed, all of these landscapes, actively managed landscapes and treating them like wilderness, pulling people off them actually destroys them. So the, the data in, the, in the, the Western deserts with Madu people shows that the removal of traditional management after the 1960s increased the size of fires that impacted the areas, decreased how many fires there were, but they were always bigger, hotter, and they were causing biodiversity crashes. You were losing monitor lizards, different plants, all of this sort of stuff. So through um, some really active agency by Aboriginal traditional owners and others to get Madu back on country, they showed over a 10-year period of active management. And there was something like, um, in the same period in unmanaged country, there were four fires that they were, the total area burnt, when you compare to Madu country, where there was 80 plus fires, was something like three times the area burnt in the unmanaged country, even though there was infinitely more fires in Madu country, so there were small strategic burns. The biodiversity at the end of those, that period was double in Madu country um, when compared to the unmanaged country. So, and people were healthier. People were executing their, their cultural obligations, their, their livelihoods were improved and they were connecting to country. So it's not just all about the environment. There was a flow back into people. And this is the central epistemology of Aboriginal people is to care for country, is to care for yourself and care for mm -hmm. people. So caring for country is a, is a reciprocal thing, which is very yeah. different than the European mindset where landscapes are kind of production machines. You know, they're levers that we pull. And, you know, we may get sick of the city that we've created so we get some, some solace out in the, in, the, in the bush, in the wilderness, which, you know, we can argue we are arguing about right now, mm. whether that's a wilderness or not. But this is very much an embedded relationship. So it's clear 
that these areas in this Madhu Desert country is considered a wilderness and it's valued because of its unique biodiversity and high biodiversity for where it's located. So actually having people manage it gives you that biodiversity, which if you take it all the way back to the, the textbook meaning of wilderness, which is the absence of people, it fails that the litmus test on what a wilderness is. It's not a wilderness. Right. Just on that load reduction you've talked about that kept these fires decades apart perhaps, how did they manage that? How did they make sure that the fires didn't get out of control? And if they did get out of control, how do they put them out? It's, there's a scale issue here. What you're getting, and I, I sort of thought about this every time I was driving out to, to Gippsland to, to meet with Gunnar Kerr and I prior to my, my work, and, and I still head out there quite often. So I'm driving you know, 1,000 kilometres um, across different kinds of country to get to where I'm going. If you think about the scale, Aboriginal people live much more locally. They're connected to a place that is much smaller than the areas of land that we're managing today. And when you're living at a smaller scale, interacting daily, uh, yearly, decadely uh, in a landscape and managing that landscape, otherwise your life depends on managing that landscape in an adequate way, it actually becomes not easy, but a very common sense on how you can curate a landscape in a way, just like you would curate your lawn, mm to interrupt fuel loads and interrupt the connectivity of, of different um, kinds of fire. So that, sure, everyone, we're human and we're all humans. We make mistakes, we do all these kinds of things. The burning that I've done with people in the, in the top end, they very, very much know where a fire is going to start and where it ends. And I've never seen one get out of hand at all. I'm sure they do. But there's, I guess, less consequence of, of that. So I can't speak to how they put them out if they needed to. Uh, quite often you can create vegetation barriers and if a low enough fuel load hits a different type of vegetation, it just puts itself out. So you, by that fine scale curation, you can get that management. But also escaped fires when there aren't sedentary populations living in cities full of flammable materials aren't as big an issue. So what we've got now is a is um, contemporary society butting up against the legacy of not looking after country but also carrying with it the problems associated with having big flammable places that you can't move readily. So we're in this new paradigm, if you like, which requires, I think, mm. you know, our suppression mode and our, if you look at our, our fire agencies in this country, what do we call them? We call them firefighters. What do they do? They're structured paramilitarily. They've got paramilitary language around containment lines and battles and all this kind of stuff. It's based on a, it's based on a notion of fear of fire, but it's also based on the myth that you can control and eradicate fire, like a war on fire, which you can't. The way around it in this continent, particularly, and other continents as well, is by bringing fire on board and using it intelligently at the right scale in the right way, not trying to put it out every time you see it. And we do this a little bit with hazard deduction, but it's localised around certain assets. It's not through an estate. Okay, We neglect areas that are beyond areas of concern. And that's where the problem arises. So is that changing then? Are our fire brigades, bushfire brigades, learning from the way that it used to be done? Are they doing it any differently? Are they doing it better? Yeah, um, there's there's real moment of change. I mean, these catastrophic fires, and, you know, we'd be nice to get through an, uh, an interview without focusing on COVID. I'm not going to, but it was a bit of a shame that COVID hit for lots of reasons. But another one is it, it took the wind out of the sail a little bit about what change was happening post the, the Black Summer fires. And there was a lot of emphasis, a real big emphasis on, on understanding that what we're doing is not working right now and that the a key to the future, one of the keys to the future is bringing traditional owners in 
and getting cultural burning back on country. And that's happening. That's happening maybe at a, at a more reduced rate than it could have, but that's that's happening now. And you know, the people on the ground, the five people on the ground, they're wonderful people and they want to know ways. They don't want to put their lives at risk. They want to affect change to make landscapes uh, safer to live in. And it's just some of the other institutional barriers. It's about, you know, in order to burn a fire in, in this country, you've got to have all these ridiculous qualifications, all these little checklists, all these kinds of things. Whereas if you talk to Aboriginal people, by and large, I've tried to do this with a research project, what does healthy country mean? And by and large, people talk about family being on country, family being involved in burning, kids being around. And it's cultural burning, like I've, as I said, I've done it with different mobs. There are kids around, you know, I've also done uh, burning with fire agencies and it's just a completely different thing. There's fire extinguishers on hand, there's, there's um, checklists, there's all this sort of safety. So it's a very different paradigm. So there's these institutional and some unconscious barriers that are real obstacles now to actually putting in the right kind of fire in the right place. And some of that has to do with trust, you know, trusting Aboriginal people who don't have all these qualifications, who may have historically been silent because it was pretty dangerous to speak up that you were Aboriginal and you had the knowledge in the past. Um, so it's about reawakening, comforting, uh, breaking down those subconscious and institutional barriers to allow the right kind of fire to be returned to country. So is there no story in those oral histories that have been passed down for hundreds, thousands of years of fire ever getting out of control that possibly of some terrible disaster occurring? Oh, there may well be, Rod. I, I'm, I'm not an exhaustive um, library of all uh, oral histories. Um, well, it sounds like you know more stories. than most, Michael, I'll say that. <laughs> there, there are definitely stories around consequences for not doing the right thing, and they have to be based on the wrong thing being done and the consequences. Yeah. And as all societies do, we wrap our understandings in in whatever capacity we have. In the science world, we try and understand things through a scientific lens. In other uh, contexts, we understand it through a religious lens or a, you might call it mythology if it's not the, the religion you're thinking about. Whatever it is, you'll, you'll wrap those stories up. But they often have a root in some kind of real thing that's occurred. So no doubt that there are, there are stories out there or underpinning this uh, uh, errors in the attempts to learn from errors that occurred. Michael, this has been a fascinating discussion. We've only just touched the surface by really focusing on fire, but thank you so much, and I hope we get the chance to talk again. Yeah, thanks a lot, Rod. Uh, appreciate the call. And that was Associate Professor in Biogeography at the University of Melbourne, Wiradjuri man Michael Fletcher. And we'll have more on Country next week. Overnights with Rod Quinn on ABC Radio.